Welcome back to the Sleepers Podcast. It's your boy G, aka Greg Waddell, with me again, Carter Elliott, aka Cartino Mobley. Cart. If your team has recorded zero wins in 2021, I cannot relate to you. I can relate to you. I'm relating over here. Uh, we've got a great guest for you today. We've got uh, Stu Douglas, former Michigan basketball player, one of John Beeline's first recruits, highly successful Big Ten champion at Michigan as Carter's well aware. Uh, great conversation with him. We did about an hour with him earlier this morning, talking everything from his high school basketball days to his time at Michigan, to the Michigan-Michigan State rivalry, to his current playing career overseas. Uh, I highly recommend you listen. I think you guys are really going to like it. But first, we wanted to do a quick check-in with both Michigan and Michigan State, seeing as both teams did start the new year with a win. So, Cart, where should we start? Whoa, 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 Michigan's win technically occurred in 2020. Am I not correct? I thought they played one since. Have they not? No, they haven't. Their first game is actually – so recording us on Sunday. Their first game is tonight in the new year. When was the Maryland game? That was – oh, that was New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve in 2020. Okay. I guess you're right. I take back. I take back what I said. So, hey, 2021 state, we here. You're also coming in on like some triumphant energy today because your Man City team smoked the Blues, and I'm sitting here with a frown on my face, wearing a Chelsea shirt, while you rep the City Boys. So whatever. Yeah, I don't really feel bad for you because we the last what two episodes we were we have recorded literally directly after blowing Michigan State losses. So like I deserve this. I know this is just going to be a new Carter energy today. You're, oh, yeah, you're coming sure. in triumphant. Yeah, I mean, it, it was like I, yesterday I was just like so torn. I'm like, damn, it feels good to get a win. But then I was like, damn, Nebraska sucks. Like, it's <laughs> like, I don't know. So let's let's go right into the Michigan State game then. So they get their first Big Ten win. They are now one and three in conference play, hopefully out of the gutter. Some really good things and some still not very good things happened in that game. I'll give you my quick set the table take on this Mm -hmm. um first of all we find out about 10 minutes before tip off that mark watts is going to be removed from the starting lineup he's going to come off the bench this seems as though it was the result of a conversation tom Izzo alluded to to the media prior to the game this week in which mark watts asked to play the shooting guard position again and tom Izzo said it was selfish of him to ever ask mark watts to play point guard. And from now on, he will just play shooting guard. So what we got was 15 minutes of Mark Watts off the bench. He was the ninth player to enter the game for the Michigan state Spartans last night. And he was what, I think three for seven from the floor, kind of more of himself, the, the under 50% shooting game, but he was focused solely on scoring and honestly looked a little more competent than he has in a couple of his big off games recently. But more importantly than that, Aaron Henry, just was phenomenal hoping like that that is you know hopefully a springboard for the rest of big 10 play and how aaron henry has to play i mean it was a truly beautiful game on both ends of the floor um he was aggressive he was knocking down shots i mean he just looked good he really needed this game i mean we talked about it in the past couple episodes he's had a horrid shooting um performances up to this point i believe he was shooting somewhere around 16 percent from three coming into this game. So just a really huge boost. Love that he was aggressive and going to the basket kind of and letting, you know, that really dictate his game instead of really relying on the jump shot as much. 
But, man, when he is hitting those jumpers at a competent rate, he's a really, really tough player. And then he's locked in on the defensive end like we know and love. So it was, you know, beautiful to see. Uh, but I think you may also made a good point. It was a little concerning that we needed a whale of a game from Aaron Henry um, to kind of really put Nebraska away. And that's, you know, there's still a lot of questions, a lot of questions that need to be answered. There's a ton of questions, but I, I do need to put my positivity hat on first and just flat out praise Aaron Henry for a good 30 to 60 seconds here. So Aaron Henry, 27 points, four rebounds, one assist, but I don't really care about anything other than the points from this game because if you look at the last month of Michigan State games with their struggles, it's been there's no offensive identity. I mean, that is the problem with this team among other problems, but unless they get that figured out, they're not going anywhere. And mm -hmm. last night, at least they figured it out. And maybe the answer was sitting in front of us all along in that Aaron Henry just needs to be that guy. He was 10 of 16 from the floor. The 16 shots is the most important part there. No one else on the team other than Josh Langford was in double digits. Josh Langford took 12 shots. Henry took, I mean, more than a third of the team shots in this game. And I think that's a great development for this team. Like you said, his three-point shot wasn't falling, but he was three for five last night, four for five from the line. Um, but those shots he was getting, the, the mid-range stuff, the, the patience he shows off the dribble, the kind of pump fake, let his guy fly by and then just make a simple finish is, I don't want to say a next-level move because I still am not super high on Aaron Henry's NBA prospects, but it's a high level all conference type guy when he's cooking like that. And Henry's done that in some games. If I, if I'm remembering correctly, he was really good against Duke. He was great in the Notre Dame game. Mm -hmm. So we know he's capable, but it's disappeared for the last month of games until last night. And I don't think it's a coincidence that state gets their first win on a night where Aaron Henry is the baddest dude on the court once again. True. And because of the deficiencies that, you know, we have and have been highlighted in access um, many of the times at the point guard position, we can't afford to have Aaron Henry have a disappearance. Um, he has to play at this level. Uh, I've been asking for kind of more of a lead guard point Henry kind of role because unfortunately that's what we have. I mean, we, if we're going to, especially if we're going to move rocket to the two, which I think honestly, at this point, we, we had no choice. I just don't, he, the, the point guard thing is not working out both on the court and for his confidence because the kid is a two guard. He, he, he thinks and is wired as a two guard. We have to accept that. And with what else we have at the point guard position, um, I'll tell you all right now, Doe Hogger had a solid game. Let's not, let's not, let's, let's relax a little bit. Okay. He so let's, let's drill into the Hogard stuff because there, there was a segment of MSU Twitter that was very quick in the middle of that game to say, breakout game we got ourselves a point guard and it wasn't everybody I'm not I'm not ripping on everybody on Twitter and honestly Michigan State fans you should be excited about Hogard that was the most competent floor general half of a game that you've had from any point guard in the second half last night now he looked he looked solid in the first half I don't want to say he looked like an upgrade necessarily to even what I think they were getting from rocket or from lawyer, because mm -hmm. I don't think he attempted a field goal in the first half and he had one assist. So if that's the bar, I mean, it, that's a bar that any division one player on the Michigan state's roster should be able to handle the second half. He looked a lot more confident to me. He looked comfortable. He was getting to the rim. 
even when he wasn't creating his own offense, he was making great kickouts. I thought he easily could have had maybe eight or nine assists in that game. He ended up with five and some guys missed some open looks. So that's a great development and it's a critical development. So I don't want to downplay this, but Hogarth had four points and five assists last night. I mean, that is the bottom line. That was not a breakout performance. That's better than anything Michigan State has had at point guard. That is not a needle-moving, change-the-ceiling game for Michigan State from Hogarth. Right. I agree with that. Um, and, I mean, I'd honestly be interested to know what you, you know, where you stand on these Michigan State questions because, I mean, for me, it's still a situation where I'm just – I'm not happy with the – I'm, honestly, I'm really still not happy with kind of where Izzo is really going. I think he still needs to really commit full on to the small ball method, um, less kippier minutes, and honestly, more Gabe minutes as well. Um, I'm not really sure why Gabe's not getting as many minutes as I think he should be getting. Well, Lang- um, Langford's getting the minutes that should yeah, go around. It, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I know you love Langford. I know his story, great, all that. You know, praise be to God, kingdom thinker. But, you know, he can do that on the bench as well. You got to play Gabe, I think, more. For, this, yeah, I, for Michigan State to be their best. I'm not convinced that Gabe Brown isn't a top two player right now on Michigan State. I mean, I, I'm i hard-pressed to figure out what Rocket Watts or Josh Langford do better than Gabe Brown right now. And I think I've said this before, but the roster, the way it's constructed is just with guys that are totally redundant to each other. And that's why Gabe Brown isn't playing a ton of minutes is because you've basically got three Gabe Browns on the roster. And if you're trying to play a true point guard and a true center that you still don't have next to that lineup, and you also want Joey Hauser to get his minutes, you also need Aaron Henry to get his minutes. It's just hard to find space, but I'm with you. I think Gabe Brown needs to see the floor more at this point. The only thing that Josh Langford can do that Gabe Brown can do is uh, Langford can rent a car without his parents' permission because he's, 25. Hey, sixth year super senior Josh Langford is going to be uh, quite a player next year. You know, he'll be coming back. Um, So I do, I do want to give Tom Izzo some praise. Carter, go ahead and mark this down. We're going to clip this. I thought Tom, Tom clearly tinkered with some things. He clearly made strategic decisions and said, I'm going to change things up. And Tom is a stubborn coach historically to me. He's not a guy that wants to do things different from the way he's done things his whole career. And last night we saw him playing with a four guard lineup, which I think would allow you to get Gabe Brown some more minutes. That four guard lineup he did with Malik Hall and or Joey Hauser at the five. Um, I, I like that. I'm curious to see where that goes. It didn't necessarily lead to an instant run last night, but I think that's something you and I have mentioned on the pod previously of like, that's a way to get your most talented players on the floor here. And I give him credit for trying it. I give him credit for making the move with Hogarth at point guard. Um, I do think his back was against the wall there and he had to do something just because of how poorly Watts has been playing. Mm -hmm. And I have a conspiracy theory. I'll say for the very end of our Michigan state segment, you know, I wasn't going to give his own praise without, I I, I knew there was a buck coming, but I mean, yeah, you got to commend him for making some changes, especially because, oh my God, if we would have somehow lost in the, I mean, it was bad. Like we were in a bad spot being 0-3, but if we were 0-3 and then came back and lost to Nebraska, literally all hell would have broke loose for real, for real. Well, in 17 point lead in the second half, 
clip down to a four-point lead with two minutes left, and who is at well, point guard for those Josh final Langford, two minutes? Josh Langford cannot check his own shadow. He is too old. Do you know who was at point guard the final two minutes in a four-point game on the road, by the way? Mark Watts. So uh, apparently in crunch time, we might need to still go to Mark Watts. Just keep an eye on that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think I think Michigan State fans obviously should just celebrate a win right now. That's where I'm at. you got to get off the schneid at some point, and they did. I don't think Nebraska's as bad as everyone makes them out to be. I think a road win in the Big Ten is huge, no matter who it is. And Nebraska, at Nebraska too. That's, I mean, Nebraska, yeah. we talk about a four playing at Nebraska. It's just like, it's Nebraska. Yeah, I picked Michigan to lose to Nebraska on Christmas Day. They ended up winning by, I think, 11. So mm-hmm. I, I don't view that totally different than a game Michigan State, for the most part, controlled. Um, I think they need to feel optimistic on the changes they made, that those could work going forward, and that's better than we were at just a week ago today. Um, now, here's, here's my issue and here's my conspiracy theory. Why did Tom Izzo have to go public with the concept that Rocket Watts wants to play the two? You said Tom. Why did Rock or why did Tom Izzo Uh-oh. have to go public with the conversation between Rocket Watts and himself, where Rocket asked to play the two? Why do you have to go public? I mean, or he, or what? not even have to? Why did he go public with that card? Well, I don't know the context of it. Was he asked a question or was it posed or did he just come out and say, I mean, people were probably asking why, you know, why the decision was made that Rockets coming off the bench and he's answering the question. So here's the thing. The, during this press conference, I don't believe that a decision was given or made. There was no discussion of rocket will be moved to the bench in the press conference. The discussion was rockets going to play a lot more shooting guard going forward. Mm -hmm. I think the quote was, it was selfish of me to ask him to play point guard. We need to get him back to where he's more natural. That's all well and good. I'm with Mm -hmm. that. It was all framed up as if Rocket Watts came to Tom Izzo and said, coach, I need to play the shooting guard. And I honestly think it seems like Izzo's trying to paint that as a selfless move from Watts. Like that's what's best for the team. And I think that is a selfless move. Now here's the deal though, Cart. I'm not buying that that conversation ever happened and I'm not buying that Tom Izzo, even if it did happen, ever should have gone public with this. Here's what I think actually is happening. Tom Izzo correctly with his staff and with everybody that's watched this team for the last month correctly has made the decision that less rocket Watts is a better thing for this Michigan state team right now. Okay. I'm not saying that for the whole season, but right now, 30 minutes of Rocket Watts is going to lead to losing basketball games. He's shooting less than 30% from three. He's shooting less than 40% from the field. He's turning the ball over. He's not assisting. He's not doing anything. He's not guarding. It's, it's bad. We all can agree on that. Now, if Izzo made that decision with the staff and they knew he was going to be the ninth guy off the bench and he was going to play 15 minutes, the best thing Izzo could have done for himself was get ahead of that a little bit. And that's what he did in his press conference this week was frame it up as if, you know, Rocket Rocket just needs to get back to shooting guard. And we we collectively agreed on that. Well, but, so, but, but, but do you not commend him for that? I mean, isn't that kind of easing up the backlash or maybe the stuff that could be coming Rocket's way, especially at this point? Because 
I, to me personally, I thought we were at a point in the season where you, you see Rocket not only not playing well, but mentally he was, I think, just all fucked up in the head. Um, he just was thinking way too much. I mean, he was going to Twitter and he was sending out these you know, cryptic kind of tweets, you know, side of die, got to get back to myself, all this type of stuff. Um, and maybe it's just a way to protect his mental, um, which I think is very, you know, which I think that's just kind of the way I'm looking at it. I'm commending Izzo for doing that. But okay. you know, like, like you point out sometimes, sometimes I just want to commend Izzo and I don't want to shit on him. I can respect that stance on it i just i don't think there was ever a, a decisive rocket watts hey coach i i'd like to play more shooting guard it's what's best for the team i think tom Izzo made the decision you know what's best for the team rocket is you coming off the bench ninth and playing 15 minutes a game and that's what's going to happen and just so you know i'm probably going to mention something in a press conference so that the entire community of michigan state fans aren't on my ass about it and honestly well executed if that's what he did and if you want to paint that as protecting a player, then I can respect that. I appreciate that move too. But yeah, that's I. It's BS that Rocket is. If he did ask to play shooting guard, he didn't know it was only 15 minutes in the ninth guy off the bench. Yeah, that was some. That was, that was some bullshit. Now, last last thing with Rocket, or I'm sorry, I need to call him Mark for the time being. For with with Mark Watts right now, is he like the best version of this Michigan State team in March? still has to have Mark Watts heavily involved, right? We have, to. We have no, like, we don't, we don't have a choice. We, it, he has to. And I, I still have a hard time seeing how we get there at this point. I mean, I guess he's probably going to be given slowly more and more opportunity over the next few games, but it's a weird spot to be in with a guy that was really supposed to be the breakout star, potentially the best player going into the season to, now really have him – I mean, he's playing Malik Hall minutes at this point, which is wild for how good he can be. Rocket was dominant in that Duke game. Mm-hmm. So they, they've got to find a way to enable that, and I don't know how you get there. Yeah, it's a – I don't have that answer. Um, hoping that, you know, they can figure it out both as a coaching staff and Mark as a player. So, you know, who knows? The Michigan State point guard situation right now reminds me of the Michigan point guard situation, Xavier Simpson's sophomore year. They had Eli Brooks was a freshman. Xavier Simpson was a sophomore who did not start as a freshman. And Jerron Simmons was the grad Mm -hmm. transfer who was a great Mac player and was everyone hoped he was the guy. Mm -hmm. And Xavier Simpson started day one. Jerron Simmons was never a factor. He looked terrible. So I, in this, uh, whatever you call it, what am I trying to say? In this metaphor, um, Jerron Simmons would be foster lawyer here. Eli Brooks would be AJ Hogard, the freshman who is inserted into the starting lineup midseason and went for four and five. I think Eli Brooks had like eight points and three assists in a Maui Invitational. And everyone was like, oh my God, we got a point guard. And then two weeks later, Xavier Simpson was starting again. So that season, if everyone remembers, worked out down the stretch because Xavier Simpson really turned into quite a player and they made a national championship appearance. Um, I think that Rocket Watts needs to be that guy for Michigan State to reach their ceiling. I don't think in March it ends with A.J. Hogarth starting at point guard if that team makes a tournament run. We need, we need Rocket. Rocket, fuel up. 
do whatever. Leave Mark at home. No Mark. When is the next time Mark Watts scores double digits? We got next game. I'll look that up real quick. I'm pulling it up right now, too. We have Rutgers Tuesday night at home at the Brest, followed by Purdue at home, then at Iowa. You said double digits? Yeah. When's Rockets' next 10 point night? Over under two and a half games. Uh, under. Under two and a half. I'm going over. I think it takes them a while to figure out still. We'll see. But if you get the header you got, it won't matter. Maybe that's the that's sitting right in front of us. If Aaron Henry does what he did last game, more power to him. Michigan State will be fine. Very true. Got out of there with the dub. Um, so that's really all. I'm, I can't complain too much. I mean, we were on three and just getting your ass whooped all the time. A dub just feels really, really good. So hope you guys, you know, the boys in blue can join us. I know they got a big one with uh, Nightclub Boo who seems to be a friend of the pod at this point. Step back, Boo. We give more positive promotion to Boo Booey than anybody else in college basketball. Easily. So, yeah, we're recording this a couple hours before Michigan hosts Northwestern. Michigan at the top of the Big Ten standings right now. They are the only undefeated team in the conference. They have not played a tough schedule. They have not played any ranked teams. Tonight is the first. Northwestern's 19th in the country. Now, I want to preface this by saying if Michigan somehow beats Northwestern by 10-plus points tonight, I don't want to hear anyone claiming Northwestern's not that good and Michigan no, hasn't no, played anyone. No. I'm going on the record right now. That's an impressive – that is a impressive win. It well, Card, Card, a lot of people seem to say the Maryland win at Maryland was not impressive after Maryland went into the Cole Center and beat Wisconsin. So I'm still a little confused on that one. I'd like some answers from the critics, but uh, you know, just your good old fashioned 11 point win on the road in big 10 play against a team that just upset a top 10 team at the Cole center seems impressive to me. Uh, I mean, Maryland's also had some bad losses this year as well. Well, Maryland shot 59% from three in that game. So hard to say they played pretty poorly. I don't remember the last time a team shot 60% from three and lost by 11. But when Hunter Dickinson goes for 26 and 11, I guess that's the state of things right now. So, sorry, I'm being a little – I'm coming across as a little aggressive here. But I'm just – I'm getting sick of Michigan skeptics giving me the hashtag wait and see because they <laughs> haven't played anyone. Like, they can only play the teams on their schedule. Yeah. They've got a couple wins that are against teams that might make the tournament. Maryland and UCF, I think, could be tournament teams. And – Mm. what are they going to do? They play Northwestern tonight. Hopefully they win. If they do, are they suddenly good now? Greg, Greg, this is, this is a big, big turning point in hashtag wait and see. This is like the C. Part this part is what we were waiting for. This tonight? Is what you're waiting. Yeah. You've been asking about it, asking all that. Uh, I didn't think it'd be Northwestern because I didn't think Northwestern was what they are, but this is a big time C game. And there's going to be a lot of narrative and a lot of talking to be had after this game, depending on the outcome. So, you know, you know, you know, the patience and the wait and see method is about to come to fruition. So Northwestern poses some problems for Michigan. And I, in my daily picks today, I gave out Northwestern plus nine and a half as one of my three picks. I feel pretty confident in that. I think this will be a close game. I don't want to go like into analyzing matchups because by the time people hear this, the game will be over, but like, Pete Nance is going to make Hunter Dickinson step out and guard the perimeter. That's really the one major question he has. I don't know if that's going to mean he has to be taken off the floor. 
Maybe you see more Brandon Johns tonight, or maybe Michigan just tries to punish Northwestern down low and kind of do what they did to Minnesota and say, or to Maryland and say, Hey, make your 60% of your threes. We're going to get two every time down the floor. Um, So I don't know. I, I think Michigan should win this game. I do think Northwestern's a top six team in the conference, but I, I think it's time to insert Michigan into the conversation of Big Ten contenders. And I'm not saying they're as good as Illinois. I'm not saying they're as good as Iowa. I'm not saying they're as good as Wisconsin. But they're in the conversation. And right now they're a game up on all three of those teams. You can say what you want about the schedule. But if you look at Michigan's schedule for the next month, Carter, tell me what their record is after this next eight-game stretch. Home against Northwestern, home against Minnesota, at Penn State, home against Wisconsin, at Minnesota, home against Maryland, at Purdue, home against Indiana. I mean, they're favorites in seven of those eight games. Yeah, that's pretty fair. I'm not mad at you. That's definitely, you know, there's some tough ones in there, but also favorable. Every tough game they have is at home in that stretch other than at Minnesota. But I don't know. I just think, I think the whole, their schedule thing, like, okay, to this point in the season, I get that concern. But like I said, a month from now, are we still going to be saying that? Cause they still have a favorable schedule for the next month. And look, if they, if they lose three of those five games over the next eight, I still think they're in the conference title conversation. And to me, at this point, barring injury, this may sound stupid a month from now, but five and three seems like the worst case scenario for that eight game stretch. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I already timestamped this. So this, uh, this clip could come back to bite you in the ass, but I mean, you got a good point. I really can't argue with that. That's definitely a favorable schedule and a attainable one. I think, um, I think you know, that that's a fair expectation for Michigan fans to have at this point. Hunter Dickinson is the second best big in the conference. Just want to make my stance on that very clear. Huh? You heard me. You're taking, are you really taking Kofi Coburn over Hunter Dickinson at this point? Yeah. Kofi has nothing in his offensive bag. Got to wait and see. (laughs) Wait and see. Um, All right. Anything else on Michigan? Or Michigan State before we get to our interview with Stu? Uh, no, I think we uh, touched on everything, but uh, um, you know, I'm really excited to talk to Stu. This was a great conversation, a uh, great interview. You know, uh, I knew a little bit less coming into it than, gee, the Michigan stand that he is, but you know, I was very aware of the player that Stu was, and you know, he's an even better person. So it was a great conversation. Really excited for y'all to hear it. Um, and Let's hope Michigan State 2021 is the year of the Spartan dog hoops. We deserve it. All the 2020 0-3 in the Big Ten and Rocky Lombardi under throwing seven-yard out routes is done. It's time to move on. Onward and upward. Well, there's a lot of year left, Cart. <laughs> uh, but, no, our, our conversation with Stu is great. He's a great guy. Uh, I admire, honestly, how much he loves basketball. The guy has stories for days from all levels, from high school to college to professional ball been playing overseas for almost a decade now and Israeli basketball legend for uh, all of our Jewish listeners. And we finally, we got the important question answered. Is he a falafel guy or a shawarma guy? So 
Stay, Stay tuned. tuned. Hey. And without further ado, we'll go to Stu. All right, welcome back to the Sleepers Podcast. We have a great guest for you guys today. We've got Stu Douglas, the one and only former Michigan basketball player, host of the Go Blue with Stu podcast from the Field of 68 Podcast Network. Stu, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you guys? Doing great. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, I appreciate um, you having me. Of course. And yeah, so so everybody listening to this knows if you're familiar with the sleepers, you know our dynamic. But we gave Stu the lowdown prior to this call to expect nonsensical comments from Carter Elliott, as always. Yeah, I was I was not blindsided. I knew this was coming and I'm still excited. You know, a game game recognizes game no matter what the jersey. So I'm all good. But I do have but I do got my hey, I'm still repping my boys though. It's not I forget that. I don't think anyone can forget that. So, Stu, I uh, in in promoting this episode this week as a little teaser, I kind of promoted you as a guest without naming your name by saying that you are the owner of one of the most iconic shots in Breslin Center history. Do you still keep that on your resume? I do keep that on my resume. There is there's video evidence of that, and so I'm I'm pretty proud of that shot. I, I like to rewatch that at least uh, once or twice every year when that rivalry uh, comes up. So it's not too bad for me. Oh, of course not, as you should. Um, so I think we kind of want to talk through sort of your rise to to your career at Michigan, and then your your post Michigan career as well. You've been a, a very accomplished professional basketball player overseas. So we'll kind of work our way through that, but. To start, we're both Midwestern guys, both from the state of Michigan. Carter played at Country Day. He's, you know, been around Division One and NBA players since playing in high school. But um, the two of us are well familiar with the the caliber of Indiana high school basketball. And I believe you played at Carmel High School. Is that right? Yep. Yep. That's correct. So what was it like kind of coming up through Indiana high school basketball? I know there's tons of great players in there, but were you always – kind of uh, on the radar as a division one guy or, or what was that story like? Yeah, it was, my, my journey was a little interesting. I started out a small school, like a three, a school it was like 700 kids. And I knew that I wanted to play against better competition and against better high school players at the time, you know, Greg Oden was reigning supreme throughout Indiana at that time. <clears throat> so I knew I wanted to get into like Indianapolis basketball. I was just a little North of that. So I decided to move to Carmel and I mean, my first day was just overwhelming. There's like over 4,000 kids in that school. Like, I didn't know what the hell I was doing, why I moved from Hamilton Heights. So it was like where I was the man. And now I got to like fight my way through. Uh, you know, I played JV and varsity my sophomore year. And I was like, you know, it, it was all confusing. But it was funny. I think my sophomore year, we played at least like three out of four games. It was like we played Greg Oden and Mike Conley in one game. The next game, we played Jeff T. And then the next game, we played Eric Gordon. And I was like, holy shit, okay, I made the right decision to come <laughs> here and, like, really try and better myself and, and see what this is all about and see what kind of level I need to get to. Obviously, I'm not going to get to that level. Um, but that was that's exactly where I knew I wanted to be in the Mick Conference. I mean, that was on fire that time. Carmel's still good. Indian high school basketball is still really great. But there was a big difference between where I was and where the top echelon of Indiana basketball is. Um, I mean, every year we lost to the state champion. We lost to Greg Oden and Lawrence North, Greg Oden and Mike Conley one year. We lost to, well, I guess Eric Gordon was a runner-up the next year. And then the next year we lost to Gordon Hayward and Julian Mavunga. So it was just nonstop. I mean, 
it's still disappointing. It's like one of my biggest disappointments my senior year losing to Gordon Hayward in the regional. It still stings and my buddies still give me crap about it because I shot horribly the entire regional. But it was definitely is definitely what I needed. I'm really thankful that I did that and didn't just kind of sit in my comfort zone because it's really easy. It's really easy. I see in high school basketball to do that. And, you know, guys will average like 30 in some school. And it's like, well, you're not really preparing yourself for, for the next level and seeing where, where you, who you need to play against. So I'm really happy that I did that, even though you know, I wish my career maybe were a little, little different in high school. But, you know, I'm really thankful for that. Yeah, that uh, that Indiana high school basketball scene. I mean, it's something that you always like hear about. Um, and you know, being from Michigan, we would always play like one or two uh, games in Indiana because of the Michigan high school basketball rules, which they need to change that. By the way, that we you can't play a certain distance away from Michigan. It's a really stupid rule. We're not going to get into it. But the first game I think we played in Indiana, we played at Bloomington South, and it was Jordan Holes, and I think they had a guard, Davis. I think he went to Xavier. Yeah. And they, they always talked about, like, Indiana high school basketball. Like, you guys don't get it. Like, when you get down there, it's going to be crazy. I'm like, okay, yeah, there's going to be fans there. There's fans at every basketball game. But we get right. down there, and there's, like, box office tickets. And I'm like, you guys sell tickets to your high school basketball games? This is yeah. crazy. And the student section is like on the floor down there. And we, I, we were not prepared for that team. That, that uh, Bloomington South team was really good. But, you know, between that and then you have like the Indiana high school, sorry, the Indiana AAU basketball scene with like those Indiana elite teams. Um, and it was just, I mean, it's, it's definitely a different level of basketball uh, down there for sure. So I can imagine – through that process of playing all these high profile guys, you probably got a fair share of looks at least, or, you know, division one coaches that are at your games. Um, I think if I have the timeline on this, right, Beeline took over probably your junior year, end of your junior year in high school. Yes, I think. Yeah. His, actually his first year was my senior year, uh, but he was recruiting that whole, my whole junior year, okay. uh, or at least that before the, my summer before summer. Uh, before okay. senior year, yeah. So were you, was Michigan on your radar and vice versa going into your senior year? Did you always know that's where you wanted to play? Basically, I mean, growing up in Big Ten country, I always wanted to play in the Big Ten. And kind of the way things fell through with just the coaches of the situation in Indiana, like I knew I didn't want to play for Kelvin Sampson at IU. And Purdue was like, yeah, maybe I could. Um, Notre Dame was on the radar. Uh, but Michigan was always the school I wanted to go to just because of watching Beeline's teams at West Virginia and the system and like the movement. And that's how I always wanted to play. Um, but my recruitment was a little interesting. Like I just wanted to get the IU Purdue Notre Dame offers just to get, just to pressure Michigan because it was like five guys that had to pass up on offers for me to get it. Clay Thompson was one and Kyle Kirk was another one, like really great players. I'm like, okay, I'm waiting around. Like, I, I kind of figured nobody was going to take it because it was first year at Michigan. And Michigan, you know, really wasn't that great of a program for the last few years. But eventually, I had a – me and my team had a terrible Las Vegas tournament to, to end the summer right before my senior year. And, I mean, I couldn't get callbacks from IU. Purdue gave my scholarship to Ryan Smith. He, I mean, he was nice enough to at least call me during school. And, like, he knew I wouldn't pick up, so he left me a voicemail. <laughs> I mean – Notre Dame didn't even call me back. Like I was supposed to go to Notre Dame and get a, do one of those kind of official visit. You'll get an offer type situations. Like they didn't say out loud, but they kind of like head nod to you a little bit. Hmm. And I didn't get any of that stuff. So it, I kind of, you know, at one point even I, I was uh, calling to commit to 
Colorado and I called Jeff Bezdelic and I remember we were in the car, we were somewhere in India in the car and I, and I called him and he's like, yeah, you don't really want to go here. You, you want to go to Michigan. So we're not going to let you come here. And I, and I was like crying, like, what the hell am I doing? Like, why have I put all my chips into Michigan? Like th- I just made a huge mistake and it ended up working out well. But at the end, it, I had such a weird recruitment with like such big schools, like nibbling at me that like small schools, I didn't really talk to, I didn't talk to any small schools or mid majors. So it came down to just Harvard and Michigan and Tommy Amaker was pushing really hard at, at Harvard. And that was, that was a cool visit. It was a really fun visit and I knew they were going to do good things, but Michigan was always my number one. And luckily the timing and the situation and guys passing stuff up and, you know, everything worked out uh, pretty well. So I'm not complaining too much. Harvard and Michigan sounds like a, a final two of a one Cassius Winston. You're probably familiar with that cart. You could, you could say similar caliber players there. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, so that's uh, first of all crazy story I had heard the Colorado story from one of your episodes of your podcast last week Um, but it's so interesting to think of how things work out you know you don't you don't end up going to Colorado even though thinking you're going to accept that and then you become really like a pillar of the John Beeline era obviously you and Novak get a ton of credit for changing the culture. Um, you referenced it just in what you were just saying, but it, it was a very tumultuous decade growing up as a young Michigan fan during the Tommy Amaker era. Yeah. I mean, they had talent, but there was, there was no expectation that winning basketball was going to come. And quite honestly, I think from a fan's perspective, I don't think there was a big expectation that the wins were going to come even into your freshman year. Um, but all of a sudden you guys stepped foot on campus and it was very clear within the first month, you know, you guys, take that neutral side. I think it was Madison square garden game against drew holiday yeah. and beat UCLA yeah. right away. Um, so what's it yeah. like? I mean, that first month you show up on campus, did you feel like this is a culture shift for the program? I didn't really know what to expect. I knew going in, you know, the first workout I had beyond called me soft in like the first two reps that I had. And I was like, okay, he's really trying to like hammer culture here and really trying to build something that he wants. And he's really not going to take no for an answer. Like it's going to be his way or the highway type situation. And that first month was crazy. I mean, we had zero expectations. Like I knew Manny Harris and Deshaun Sims were super talented, but obviously the roster around him, like nobody knew anything. We had CJ Lee and David Merritt was a walk on and like they were playing major minutes me and Zach, nobody expected anything from us. And we were starting by the end of the year so it was crazy to win that game in Madison Square Garden. I mean, that is still one of my favorite games I've ever played. It is that, – that facility, that arena is incredible. Just like the lights, it's like a stage. You know, they have like dark all around. It's just like the court is only lit up. It's really cool. And like fans were drinking at the game, so there was a bunch of drunk Michigan fans. That was really fun. But I remember looking back and like uh, some pictures, and I – it was like, I'm such like this, like non-confrontational person. So my freshman year, like I'm too shy to, I was even too shy to like go find a barber. So I had this like bowl cut all the way around. And I'm like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> but I'm like, oh, at least I played well. And like in that game too, I played pretty or well enough. I hit one shot and, and Dickie V called me a diaper Danny. And I was like, what, like, what the hell just happened in the first month of basketball? Like I had no expectations. And all of a sudden Dickie V, that was like a big deal back then. Hell Yeah. And so that was cool. Um, yeah, I mean, that's still that's still one of my top five memories, just going there into New York and, you know, 
playing a game and then me and Zach were roommates. We had a, we had a mouse in our room that like kept us up one night and just like, just a crazy trip to like kind of inaugurate yourself to a college basketball. So that was, that was a lot of fun. For sure. I mean, I think we all know everybody loves playing at the garden, mostly NBA players. They don't like playing for the Knicks, but they love playing at the garden. Oh yeah. It is a show every time. Crazy. So you guys also that freshman year, at least from the fan side of things, it was like, this is the first time in a decade that Michigan could make the tournament. Yeah. Was that like an ongoing thing that players on the team were aware of? Was there pressure that you guys felt to like break that streak? There was, I mean, I remember it was talk all year and I don't know if we felt the pressure just because I did not know what to expect. I, I would say I felt the pressure more in my junior year because our sophomore year was so bad and we had the talent and we were ranked in the top 25 to begin the year. And then we had a losing record. So that freshman year, there was definitely some pressure at the end to like, I think get to 20 wins or whatever the magic number was that we had established. I don't even know if we got there, but eventually ended up working out. I just remember the selection Sunday and we got announced and I pretty much knew we were in and everyone's just absolutely freaking out. Like we get announced, it's this big ordeal. We have this big ordeal in Chrysler all set up all these chairs and all these fans. And I just was a little shocked, honestly, by the excitement. And I was like, what's the big deal? Like, it's just making the tournament. Like I would like to go there and win a game, but it was a big, big, big deal to the fans. So I think it was kind of, I mean, it's a big deal to the players, but there was definitely more that we wanted to do. We knew what we were capable of. Um, and we did end up getting a win in that, in that first game uh, against Clemson. So that, that was, a, that was a lot of fun. That was really cool. But that sophomore year, that was such a huge disappointment that I think the junior year that, that had a lot of pressure that, that ended up being the most pressure that I've had because we started, I think, Oh, and six and big 10 play. And it was like, all right, what the hell are we doing? Like, we are way better than this. We know what we're capable of. We want to get back to the tournament and win games. Um, so yeah, that freshman year was almost kind of like a blur at, at points because you're just so young and you're just thrown into it. Like the whole season, you're just almost trying to keep your head above water because the whole time you're just thinking, I just want to play minutes. I just want to play minutes and I just want to be in the game. And so you're just kind of keeping your head above water. You're not really thinking about too much else. Wait, yeah, so Stu, I, Stu, I do have to ask though. So that vibe on campus freshman year was was freshman year Stu feeling himself? Was I mean, you bit. go to MSG, you get a bucket, you get called a diaper dandy. Yeah, you know, you're probably coming back to the you know the diag or wherever you're hanging out, and you you know get a couple pats on the back. Couple, did people know who Stu the freshman year Stu was on campus? A little bit, a little bit more after that massacre garden game. I, I got a haircut, so that helped. Uh, <laughs> that definitely helped my confidence a little bit, but. It's funny, man, to go on to campus and like even even later on, and I majored in econ and like going like econ classes and calculus classes, and it's like they don't know what the hell is basketball and who who I'm just this normal white dude in like sweatpants and like I have to wear Michigan basketball shirts, I think. And there's certain classes you can take, but you know, Michigan's such a such an academic forward school for for most of the um undergrad there and even the the graduate students that you know I could very easily go unnoticed I mean junior and senior year was a little different you know you go you step into the bars and, and you can get a little more notice but like freshman year I'm just sitting at home in my dorm and it's like mm, not many people really not really people may, uh, paying too much attention but yeah it was definitely 
definitely a little more heightened after that. That's right. So you mentioned starting 0-6 in Big Ten play junior year. I had written down you guys were 11-9 and overall at the time, 1-6 and in Big Ten play going into the game at the Breslin your junior year. Um, and I think, to me, my perception of this, if I throw myself back in that day as a fan, it was like there wasn't that belief that the beeline thing was working yet. I mean, obviously the the year one went great, but year two sort of fell off a cliff. And then year three started so rocky that, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't pulling the Mitch McGarry recruits yet. He he had his system and it was a very strict and a rigid system to a fan's perspective, but it really, I mean, you could feel the noticeable shift of just the weight off the shoulders after that win at Breslin. But I guess during the season at, at that point, going into that game, I mean, were you guys feeling, I already asked, were you feeling added pressure, but like, was there a conscious effort of like, man, coaches on the hot seat, maybe a little bit here, what's going on? It's funny. I was told this years after I graduated, maybe one or two years after I graduated by some of the media guys that covered us. And they were like, yeah, like people, Beeline was very close to getting fired. If you guys did win that game or if that season didn't turn out the way it did. And I don't know, it kind of shocked me because sophomore year almost felt, it was a massive disappointment. I, I understand why he'd be kind of under the gun for that, but it, it kind of felt like an anomaly because I knew what he was building there and I knew that it would take time and just the makeup of our sophomore year and, you know, guys, for whatever reason, it just didn't work out sophomore year. I mean, Manny just wanted to go to the NBA and, and Deshaun the same thing. And we weren't really focused. I think we were feeling a little too good about ourselves after the freshman year and junior year, kind of similar things as well. Like we started out the year and guys didn't really want to take responsibility for their actions. They're worried about themselves mostly. And we had a lot of, Beeline was undergoing a lot of system changes. Like if you watch the West Virginia teams compared to our team, especially my junior year when, when uh, Darius Morris was, leading the team at point guard, massive changes. I mean, we, we turned into a ball screen team. It was all ball screens. Darius was running the majority of the offense. His usage rate was probably, you know, off the charts. And the same thing with Trey my senior year. So we changed a lot of, I think what, he changed a lot of what he did. I mean, he really grasped ball screen offense in those few years. And it was a major focus. And he would actually verbalize it to us about how he was changing. He was learning a lot about using just ball screens and how we could space and move off of ball screens. And before it was really not like that for him at West Virginia, especially. And he was, I think he was trying to force that a little bit with the personnel at Michigan and the type of talent you can get at point guard at a school like Michigan and the type of guys he could recruit, like, well, just let them go, like let them, let them use those ball screens. And that's just what basketball is nowadays. And, and around the entire world, it's just ball screen offense. So that was a big adjustment. Um, but before that game, it was weird. We had confidence going in that Michigan State game because we had this meeting. I think it was before Minnesota. I think the game before that was Minnesota when we won. And we had this meeting and the whole attitude just changed. I mean, we all just said, okay, if this doesn't go well for the team, this isn't going to go well for any individual. So guys started taking more responsibility. There was minimal finger pointing after that, more of just holding guys accountable, less attitudes, less cattiness. And we really did feel confident going into Michigan State, even though nobody else was confident, because we knew we were capable of talent-wise when we put it together. Mm-hmm. Um, going in, did I think that it was the turning point that it kind of has been narrated to be? 
I don't know. I don't think we really felt that. I knew it was like a must win for us just to keep things rolling. But we, he, he keeps us on such a one game at a time um, perspective that even if we lost the game, it was like, all right, move on. We'll learn from this and go on to the next game. So inside, you know, you, you enjoy wins for about 12 hours. And then the next day you're watching film on your mistakes and you're moving on to the next team. So it wasn't until after the fact and like seeing that play played so many times on highlight reels and, and TV and stuff and talked about by Michigan fans. I uh, didn't really sink in and probably till after I graduated, to be honest with you. I didn't watch that video for a while. <laughs> I was going to say, Carter, Carter probably yelled at me this morning because I tweeted out just from our sleep. Uh, the guest for this week, and it's a shot from the Michigan State game. Yeah, Actually, I'm just, I'm just looking at the notes from everything. I'm just like, everything, I think he even bolded the most iconic shot in Brazil. I'm like, I know, it, was, it, it hurt. All right. Look, we're just over here opening, pouring salt in the closed wounds, I thought, but you know. It happens. I mean, you got to. That's what Michigan fans are good at. I feel like both both sides are very good at pouring salt in the wounds of the other. Oh, for sure, no doubt. And so you you kind of hinted at a point that I think is really interesting. Where in the moment it may not have necessarily felt like it totally flipped the switch. And obviously, if you guys didn't go on a great run after that game, maybe we don't look back and remember that game as the saving point of the John Beeline era. But you did. We all know that. But I think the the other side of why I think that win still carries so much weight to me, especially as someone that grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, as a Michigan fan, um, is is the rivalry. Right. And I think my perception of that rivalry going back to really put myself in that moment was Michigan State had dominated Michigan for the majority of the Izzo era. Right. And it wasn't even necessarily that Michigan state was so great. It was just that the narrative of what Michigan was at that point was so down below what beeline was about to take them to. Um, But also I think there was a truth to the fact that, you know, Tom Izzo, Draymond green guys within that program are very open in the fact that they hate Michigan. And I think when you flip that, I didn't ever feel that from John Beeline. I don't know that I ever felt it from specific players on your team. Obviously there's clips of Zach going crazy, mm-hmm. but was that, is that an accurate interpretation of the rivalry from your years at Michigan? Did it feel like it was one-sided in terms of hatred? Um, maybe. I think because they beat us so much, especially in my first two years and Ohio state, the same thing that it was like, I'm not going to sit here and call it a rivalry. Like we can't even get close. We got close. I think one year, my sophomore year, uh, was it summers grabbed Deshaun's Jersey. I threw him an oop and we should have had that. That should have been a game winner right there. That, that still haunts me too, but One of the worst, no calls of all time. I can still of all think. time. He was, blatant. No calls I was like, all, all three time. refs could see it. We're throwing it into that category. That, there's a lot yes. of no calls in history. Man. I mean, a full grab. I mean, he took, but anyways, yeah. So, I think, yeah, junior year is starting to heighten and um, on both sides, Michigan State and Ohio State, and, you know, really feel like, okay, now we're starting to really belong in this category and with these teams and in the top of the Big Ten. And we proved that when we, you know, we all tied for the, the Big Ten championship my senior year. Um, but I was always one to, like, not talk too much trash. I tried to keep it a little calm. You know, Zach was a little more excitable and a little more fiery. Um, but... Yeah, that was definitely that was definitely a turning point in junior year. 
So you did. So are you are you going on record saying that you did not hate Michigan State? No, no, I definitely they definitely annoyed the hell out of me. Okay. <laughs> like Draymond talking the whole time. I think we beat them. We beat them at home. Um, that was my senior year. And he's talking about how he, he out-rebounded our entire team even. It was like a fluke loss or something. I'm like, dude, just come on, man. Eventually, he ended up, like, saying something respectful about me and Zach. And I was like, okay, I think he's fine. I mean, we all, I always respected them. Uh, but that hatred was definitely there. And it was definitely more for Michigan State than it was for Ohio State. I think Ohio State is more of a football rivalry than anything. But when that school is so close like that and you just – you hear more about Michigan State from the fans – and you get the you get the thousand and whatever the kids painted on their chest thousand something days that they painted on their chest at um, my junior year and like just the hush of the crowd when I hit that shot and like just the pain and the eyes of the fans <laughs> like you're like oh okay this is this is exactly the rivalry that you picture playing in in college like when you pictured it in high school like playing in a college rivalry that was exactly it and it didn't really hit until that game so that was a lot of fun that was that was definitely a turning point for that experience yeah you, d you definitely uh made a lot of michigan fans happy and like g spoke to i mean i think back then or at least during that time there was just that stigma of michigan state players coming out and saying uh we didn't go to michigan because we thought michigan was soft that was kind of like the that was the main stigma and even i think in a recent like podcast or interview draymond green brought it up i believe on a podcast it's just it was kind of that stigma um and you know being a young fan things like that kind of stick with you and that, i think the michigan state fan base really adopted that kind of you know we want to be more gritty than michigan or we don't want to yeah. be stuck like michigan people and that was kind of the stigma back then is that something that kind of like, you, you know, like fueled you at that time? Like people, because you went to Michigan, they think you're soft. Like that's, Oh, for sure. That was definitely the case. Yeah, that was definitely the case. I mean, up until senior year when everybody started to respect us more, uh, that was definitely the case. Um, you know, I think Novak really took that to heart because he played the four spot. And so he was matched up against Draymond. And I mean, he, he killed that game. He hit six threes, he killed them. And that, that fueled him a lot because he was an undersized four guy and he had to battle down there. Um, that definitely fueled me, but it was definitely a different type of game where, you know, I don't need to go body Keith Appling to like establish myself, you know? So it, it was definitely different perspective from the guard standpoint, but it, as a team, yeah, we, we, we for sure felt that. And we heard all the talk and it was annoying as hell. But again, like first two years, it was like, what are you going to say? Like, you got to prove it on the court. So that, that junior year when we were fledgling and playing horrible, I mean, that was a, that was a big wake up call for us. So everything timed out pretty perfectly for that, that crazy moment. It's funny how you look back and something like that. And if we play Michigan state, the second game of the big 10 schedule, like that stuff, that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's really funny when those special moments work out like that. Yeah. The universe aligned to kind of set things in motion for really the rest of JB's career. Yeah. Um, so then I, I got to ask too, you alluded to your senior year and Trey comes in, Tim Hardaway Jr. had been there your junior year. He kind of had the breakout. Well, I don't even want to call it a breakout year. I think it, people expected a breakout sophomore year from him that yep. maybe didn't totally come until his junior year, but you guys, you know, as soon as Trey comes on campus, really, and I think game one or game two, he starts at point guard and it was very visible, like, okay, this dude's the real deal. Um, 
I think that that sort of flipped the expectations for your senior year and just what the program, the level the program had gotten to right now, you've got two NCAA tournament appearances out of three, the recruits coming in the year after you guys, obviously everyone knows about the class with McGarry, Stauskas, Glenn Robinson. Um, but that was sort of the year where it felt like, okay, the weight's off the shoulders for Beeline. This is sort of the going away party this senior year for, for Stu Douglas and Zach Novak. Uh, and you guys had a great year. I mean, share of the Big Ten Conference title your senior year. Um, so what what was that season like? And also, I do want to ask, I saw you mentioned this on another podcast where you were pushing very vocally for let's get Casey Prather over Tim Hardaway Jr. in the yeah, recruiting yeah. circle. Did you have any perceptions of Trey? I know Carlton Brundage was also a point guard in that recruiting class. I mean, what was... What was the whole Trey Burke experience like going into your senior year? I guess I didn't have too many expectations. I mean, I watched his high school highlights and to be honest, like I wasn't paying attention too much to recruits or commits. And like, I got so much to worry about myself and like, whatever, if they come in, you know, you can watch a high school kid all day, but I'm not going to really know what they're about until they step on campus and they have that first month of practice and, and, and see their mentality and how they go about their business. So I didn't really have too many expectations for any freshman at all, really. Um, but Trey, I remember playing one-on-one -on -one with him before the season even started. And, you know, I was our lead defender. Like I, I guarded all the best guards. Like that was my job. Whether I did well or not, that was my job. So I, I guard, guard and Trey and, and he's just busting my ass in one-on-one -on -one in one day. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, all right, he's getting a little lucky. And like days go by and I'm like, okay, like this kid is just this good. And I don't know how he's this good or why Ohio State didn't pick him up or why he wasn't more widely recruited. Like it didn't make any sense. And I think I even started the first game of the season at point guard because I played point guard off and on. And, you know, coach likes leadership and he likes seniors who know what they're doing. And so, like, I understood. But then I think I even came to them and I was like, you'd have to start Trey. Like, first of all, I don't really want to be the lead guard. I like playing two and being sort of that side role where, like, I can observe things better instead of having to handle the ball. And you know, it's, just, it's just better for me overall. But Trey established early on, like, he should be starting and should be playing. And it's, it was so hard for Beeline to trust freshmen uh, to do anything, but Trey is such a type of guy where, you know, Trey didn't really talk that much. He wasn't opening his mouth. He wasn't like voicing opinions. He wasn't a problem. There wasn't anything to deal with. It was like, Trey's just going to do what Trey does. And so we need to kind of build around that and let him do what he does. And I think Beeline got really, really good at that point of just letting players do what they do and building around, putting them in positions to do what they do and not quite forcing them into spots where he wants them in his system. And I think that is a huge testament to him evolving. And that was a huge part of his success, I believe. Um, two Final Fours, two National Championship games. I mean, that, that was massive for him. And I think that started with Trey. Because um, it was just, you know, again, it was junior years. Give Darius the ball. Let's run ball screens and see what Darius can do. And Darius was very successful. He got drafted. And we saw the same thing with Trey. Trey was very capable of the same exact things. And... I mean, he was just impressive to watch. I remember hitting, watching him hit some shots on Aaron Kraft, just some tough, tough shots, games we won. And I'm just like, how is this kid doing this? Like, how does he have the balls to do this over and over again? But he's the type of guy where it was like, he's not overthinking things. He's just doing him. 
And that was a massive part of our success. I mean, without Trey, I mean, without Trey, you, you don't get the national championship game uh, the year after I left. You don't get the Big Ten championship that we had. So that was a huge turning point, um, I think, in, in the Michigan program for sure. And you don't get any of that unless you hit that shot at the Breslin Center. That's, all, that, that's what I'm really tying this into. None of this happens. You're never so going to get over it, Cart. I'm just, never I'm gonna just get saying, over it. any Michigan fan, make sure you give Stewart's flowers because none, none of that happens unless he hits that shot. That's, I mean, that's just adding, you know, two plus two equals four right there. Well, there, was and if, funny, there was a funny story. Uh, it was a GA. I was talking to a GA at Michigan, and he was taking Beeline to the airport. And he was just driving, and all of a sudden, Beeline was like, you know what? I wouldn't be here unless Stu hit that shot at Michigan State. And I was like, oh, shit, okay. I was like, I'll take that credit. That's fine. If he wants to say that, I'll take that all day. But it's hard for me to take too much credit for it. But, uh, yeah, that, that definitely felt good. Well, you did a lot more than hit that shot, too. That's the other, the other thing we should be very clear about. But yeah, I like the shot before that I, that I hit on uh, Kalen Lucas. I love my turnaround jumper. That might have been my, my more uh, favorite shot than, than the last one. But, yeah, it's hard to choose. That the the dunk against Tennessee was it? It was Tennessee junior year. I mean, you have you have a full on highlight reel if people want to look. It's still funny, man. People will ask me all the time, like, "Can you dunk?" And I'm like, "I'm six three. First of all, like, if I couldn't dunk, there's a real problem there. Like, if you're playing Division One basketball and you're six three, I think if you're six foot and you're playing Division One basketball, you can't dunk. Like, something's up. But yeah, it's I still get that to this day. I mean, I'm just so I guess I just look so unassuming. Like I said on campus, people weren't really paying attention to me and. I tell them I play basketball now and they're like, it's like, okay, I guess. I don't know. Well, for the record, I'm six, two and a half and I've never touched the rim. And that's well, why I've only played high school basketball. There you so. go. Exactly. Exactly. You can't touch the rim. No, I can't touch the rim. We don't, we don't need to spend too much time on that. I do. He's I, I have to say this though, Stu, you mentioned talking to the coaching staff in Michigan and saying, I, I got to jump back and play the two. That's going on with the Michigan State program right now with a, a Mr. Rocket Watts card. I saw that. So, I mean, hey, it worked out really well for Michigan. Maybe A.J. Hogard's going to have a little late freshman year bloom into Trey Burke. Who knows? You never know. That's what's funny, man, because you can lead from any position. And, and you know, people always like, oh, the lead guard, lead guard, lead guard, all this. And, like, got to be a leader at point guard. And – you know, we had Zach and I as seniors and we were the leaders and Trey didn't have to do all that stuff. He just had to be talented. So it just depends on the makeup of your team. And if Rocket needs to move to the two and somebody else comes in and he can lead better from that standpoint or even just produce from that standpoint better, I think it'll take an adjustment. I think that just happened last game, right, for the first time. So it'll, it'll take time for that for sure. Yeah, I think uh, in reality, Rocket's move to the two was more a move to the bench from what I've seen. I think oh, he, he oh, played 15 it? minutes and was the ninth guy off the bench oh, last okay, night. that's brutal. Never mind then. <laughs> but we'll see. Cart, do you have any comments on that? We can talk no, later about that. I thought we were just – I didn't know we were going to – you just really <laughs> blindsided me with this. I, I mean, I got my notes on it, but I didn't know we were going to get into this. Hey, the door opened up. I had to jump into it. Yeah, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Touche. All right, so let's let's move to your professional career, Stu, because, I mean, you've been going at this for almost a decade now. Um, I've got some friends who are in the Jewish basketball community who are, are well tapped into the world of Israeli basketball, and they're talking to me like you're an icon over there. <laughs> so I think you started in Spain, right? And then it's been a, a move to Israel for a bunch of years now, right? Yep. Yep. I started in Spain. You know, my agent came to me and 
with, I have an Israeli passport, so I'm an Israeli citizen. And my agent came to me and was like, yeah, you know, like with your mom's whole Jewish heritage, like you can get an Israeli passport. You can, what they call make Aliyah and return to Israel and get your, get your citizenship. And I was like, okay, I don't know if I want to do that right away. You know, let's go to Spain first. I want to get back to, I want to get back to how I played in high school and like play more for me, play more of how I did moving around. Like, like I, you know, Reggie Miller, who I idolized growing up, like I wanted to get back to scoring and shooting more. And I had a good year, my my first year. Uh, it was a very interesting year. I started out with a major injury. Like before I even went over there, I didn't even tell them that I got hurt like the week before I left and ended up not being able to play for like a month or two months or something like that. Like my whole back was locked up and they ended up not cutting me luckily. And I was shooting like 30% from three for the first half of the season. And the second half went really, really well. Uh, and ended up later learning that I had a fracture in my back. So that was fun. Oh, wow. But it was not, a, not the best start to, to my career. Like I could have easily been cut and, and had it all pretty much end there. But everything went well. And then I moved to Spain. Or I'm sorry, I moved to Israel my, my second year and got the citizenship and got thrown into that. And that was a whole new learning experience and different style of basketball than Spain was. Um, so it's been, it's been constant adjustments. Uh, every year is a new learning experience. Um, you know, guys jump around from country to country and I've been in Israel now, uh, God, what, eight years. I played eight seasons, I think. And every year, something new, something new with some new team. You got to deal with management or playing time or a coach or players or league rules or just whatever, like it's always an adjustment. And I, and I think it gets, it can wear on guys for sure. Um, but I've been very lucky to be able to be in one country for as long as I have, because it definitely has become like a second home to me. I feel very comfortable there and guys get thrown into a new country and they're uncomfortable and, you know, mentally they're not always there. So I, I've been pretty, pretty lucky with that. Yeah. That's, that, that's definitely refreshing to hear, especially with that uh, your first kind of year out of their situation. Cause you know, when you talk about overseas basketball and, you know, I even know personally some people who played overseas and sometimes situations like that, you hear, basically you hear all the horror stories about overseas right. basketball, especially with things like injury, because they had absolutely no second thought about just saying, okay, you know what? No, we don't want you. We'll get somebody else. So that's definitely, uh, you know, kind of really refreshing to hear and, you know, seeing that you've been able to actually maintain that for, I mean, eight years, that's almost a decade. That's, I mean, that's an accomplishment in itself. Yeah, it's its funny. Um, I was just talking to my mom this past summer about it. And, you know, I always like, I always put expectations on myself a little higher than, than what I've achieved or what I can't achieve. And I think that always pushes me, but it's always like disappointing when you don't reach that point. And I have to look back and realize that, damn, I have done this for a long time. Like that is a win. That is success. Like just sticking with it because you see so many talented guys go overseas and just quit and give up on it because it is very difficult. And the, the, the irony of it is the guys that get so close to the NBA have the hardest time overseas, I, I feel like, because they are so close and then they get into an Israeli league and their apartment is not great. Like they had it there their first year in the NBA, the, the situation is not great. Their car is not as nice as their Mercedes that they were driving. And it can be a definite grind. And I see so many stories of like, yeah, this guy played D2 basketball. And now he's playing in the top echelon of European basketball. And it's like, yeah, because he stuck with it and just kept going. And like he had that mindset. So it can be the horror stories definitely stick out. And 
it's funny because we came out, you know, I came out in 2012 and with the 08 crash, I mean, it, it hurt so many teams. I, I remember hearing Deshaun Sims went to Greece and he had to leave. He left within the first month because they weren't paying him and he just like vanished and just all the horror stories from the 08 crash. And it's still, I mean, there's still issues with the team and now coronavirus uh, teams are in financial trouble now. And it's definitely a different situation. You know, I'm home right now in Indianapolis because I knew I wasn't going to get any good offers um, to start the year. And teams were going to try and be cheap, just like they were after the 08 crash. And then later in the year, oh, we magically found some more money. So I think I'm going to go back in a few weeks. But it's, it's definitely funny to figure out those situations. Like if this was my second year, I would have gone for very little money. I would just be like, I need to get a contract. I need to go now. But now I know how the, these things work. And I can be patient and take my time, enjoy Christmas with my family for the first time in, in nine years uh, or in eight years. And yeah, it's just funny what you pick up and just you just need those experiences. But it's uh, it can definitely be a roller coaster ride. That's for sure. Yeah, like Cart said, you you picked up that cloud on campus at Michigan after a, a year or two. I think you've got the Israeli basketball cloud now. You can go home and enjoy Christmas with the fam. I love it. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, I mean, the the let's be more like Reggie Miller mentality. Let's go get a bigger role, get some shots, and play that brand of basketball. I'm curious, what's your like NBA comp in the world of Israeli basketball? If we asked Israeli basketball fans, what was Stu Douglas's career? Are you like are you Robert Ori over there? Are you, are you Reggie Miller? What's the answer there? It's funny. If I was still in Spain and like playing like that, like it would be like Reggie, it would be like Reddick. It would just be moving off screens. And, and there is a part of me that regrets ever leaving Spain because of the way they play. And I mean, I had my first year, I had a seven footer and a six ten dude, like setting me down screens the entire time. And Spain plays like that a lot. I don't know if you guys remember Juan Carlos Navarro, Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, this little dude, I mean, he killed it. And he was like, had no muscle. They told me he smoked a half pack a day of cigarettes and like just ran around, and just made buckets because he was just moving all day. And that's exactly how I wanted to play. Israel's very different. It's very one-on-one, -on -one, very much ball screen offense. And it's frustrating at times. I won't go into that, but it can be, it's definitely a different style. So like right now I'm just like a, you know, turn into like a three and D type guy, play smart. A lot of what I did at Michigan is kind of a lot of spot up, um, you know, try and hit my threes at a high clip and just play smart basketball. Um, it's not the most fun in the world. It's definitely, it, it definitely can wear on you. Um, you know, six-year-old me isn't looking at what I've done in the last few years and been like, yeah, this is exactly what we pictured, but it's survival, right? It's a job. So you just do what you have to do. And I think that's been the thing that I've been best at. I remember I was actually in a club in Tel Aviv, my second or third year. And I had this old vet come up to me and he was, uh, you know, American Israeli guy as well. And he came up to me and I never talked to him before, but he, he singled me out right away. And I could not, I could barely hear this dude. Like the club, the music was so loud. I left, my ears were ringing, but somehow we had this conversation in the middle of this club. And he's like, every year you have to adjust. Like whatever you think is going to happen with your expectations for this year, because every year, like you're moving to a new team, you have new teammates, new coach. You're, it's very much a selfish situation. Like you're trying to better yourself and prove yourself initially. And like guys get very selfish in these situations. 
So he's like, whatever expectations you have for that, like you kind of have to throw out the window and just make sure you play, like make sure you're seen, make sure you are viewed as a viable option on the court as, as a player that can be put in the game and win games. And, you know, try not to do too much, try not to do too much that you're not good at. Um, and I, I learned that early on, especially at Michigan. Uh, I think that's helped me with the uh, longevity of my career. That's for sure. I'll give you a ton of credit. It may not have been what, you know, six-year-old Stu wanted to picture as his dream life when he grows up. But man, not a lot of people at any level of basketball anywhere in the world play professionally for a decade, um, let alone have the, the success you had in college. So I, I'm totally impressed. I congratulate you on I you know, everything that. you've Thank done you. this year, your whole career. I do as well, but also operation, getting my guys to a couple of down screens, 2021. Honestly, oh. man, it's so, dude, it, it's so funny. I had, I played, God, what was that? Like my fourth or fifth year and shooting really well that year. We had a coach and he literally, literally came up to me in the first couple of months and he says, you know, I know you played, you ran around in Spain and you did really well with screens and coming off screens and stuff like that. But, you know, we just don't do that in Israel. <laughs> I was like, what the hell are you talking about? It's so easy. Just give me like 10 <laughs> plays a game, dude. Just it's, it's not hard. Just throw in, call it X and I can run one play. Like, just give it to me and let me do it. And eventually our point guard, uh, him and the coach were going at it all year, but he eventually strong-armed him into like giving me some down screens at the end of the year and it, and it worked out for us pretty well. But it's like, it's just weird mentality of where you just get stuck in this way. And it's like, when you're overseas, like you can't really pick, when you're a middle or a bottom team in Israel, you can't really pick your what players you want. You know, it's like, I want a point guard that's going to average 18 and eight. And it's like, okay, good luck with that. Like you just got to find out who your best players are, what they do best and kind of go from there. But the coaching is, it, it leaves a lot to be desired. That is for sure. I can imagine that's, that's wild. And yeah, I urge everybody listening to this, check out Stu's podcast with the field of 68 network, because I've heard some of your in-depth stories of overseas basketball issues with fans are crazy. We don't need to get into that today, but they're great. They're wildly entertaining. So check that out. Um, I do. If you've got time, I do want to ask you about how much you've watched Michigan this year and your perception of the team with Juwan right now, because Obviously, they're playing great. They're undefeated. There's questions on the, the strength of schedule so far. Mm. Um, we're recording this on a Sunday before they play a game at Nor or against Northwestern in Ann Arbor tonight. But they've, uh, they've exceeded my expectations as someone who thought they would be, you know, a middle-of-the-pack Big Ten team this year. Um, so what's it like for you? Do you get to watch a ton of this Michigan team, and what do you think of them? Yeah, I've watched a little bit, um, enough to, like, you know, see how they've adjusted. Uh, this year is so crazy. I think it is all about survival. And even at eight, no, like it is survival for, for them, for, for any team. It does not matter. You see, saw what happened to Kentucky, all, the, all these teams. I mean, there's only a few top teams that are like locks, it seems like. But especially in the Big Ten, where any night you can lose Northwestern by however many points, or you can turn around and lose to the worst team by. 10, 15, like it does not matter if you're just off your game. So the adjustments that they've made with Hunter kind of taking over have been huge. I was watching the Nebraska game and especially in the first half. And, you know, I, th I don't think Hunter shot his first field goal attempt till well past the second half, uh, the second part of the first half. 
because they were just double teaming them. They're, you know, these teams now are adjusting. They're just sending double teams. And you saw like the hesitancy of guys around the perimeter, like moving and cutting. I think I saw Eli was like the first one to really do it in that first half against Nebraska. And then other guys started to move. Uh, I think I mentioned this on the last pod, like one time, I think it was Livers or Franz threw it into the post to Hunter. And then he like, he didn't cut. He like didn't know where to go. And he kind of like shuffled five feet down in the paint. And then one or the other, they replaced each other and it worked out and they like didn't even know what they're doing. So all you have to do is just move, throw it into Hunter and move. And I think they're just making those adjustments on the fly and really figuring out what they're made of because it's only eight games and now they're thrown into the middle of the big 10. And so they have to make these adjustments still on the fly, like every other team. Um, you know, I was begging Franz to shoot more. And I was talking to Brendan Quinn on my podcast last episode and he wrote an article about, you know, what is going on with Franz. And he, in, in that quote, Franz said he needed to be more aggressive, but that doesn't necessarily mean he needs to take more shots. And I was like, yeah, it does, dude. Like, you have to take way more shots. Like, you just have to go and shoot it. You are 6'10". You're so skilled. You can shoot the three. You've got great touch. You can drive. Like, you shoot first, and then all the other things will come into play. We'll, we'll, we'll line up with the team aspect that you want to play, the passing, the playmaking that he is more than capable of doing. So that's been very refreshing to see him score more and give to the team in that way because that opens up so much for other people like that him being selfish with heavy quotes is unselfish for the team like it opens up so much more for the team so they're starting to figure out their roles what they're good at guys just stepping up I mean Sean D like didn't even play 20 minutes last game and I was begging for him to play more minutes because he's been so efficient and he's a great defender and he's super intense and he just wants to win and prove himself and they didn't even need him last game so they're proving that they have so many options to go to and in any given night, they can kind of adjust to what teams are going to throw at them because they have the talent. And I think they're getting that confidence where they know, okay, whatever teams throw at us, you know, we can adjust like Illinois is probably not going to double team Dickinson uh, when Coburn's going to be guarding him. So what are you going to do then? What, you know, what's going to happen then? We'll see. But I think they're, they're realizing that they're capable of figuring that out on the fly. And that's huge because that is college basketball. I mean, you can find yourself in a tournament game. I mean, it's all about adjusting on the fly. Like you can, it's just, it comes down to one game. Every, every, every game is just comes down to one game and you have to think that way. I mean, we, we love to think big picture and how many games they need to win and who they need to beat ranked and don't lose these bad games, but you have to keep that mindset and just be ready every single night. And it gets very tiring, but I think they've done a good job with that and they've improved on that. So that's been nice to see. Especially, especially in the big 10, you, ain't, you don't have any time to, you know, to do anything. You're playing, you know, ranked teams back to back to back nights. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. And I think on the last episode that me and G had, when we were talking about Michigan, I think that you kind of touched on a little bit. I think the scariest part of Michigan is that I don't think Franz has played to the level that he can yet. So like if a Franz becomes more selfish on the offense end and you got guys who just want to win like Sean D and then you got Hunter Dickinson, who you really can't teach seven, two massive guys with great hands who can pass the ball. Like you can't teach that. And also moving forward, if I'm Jawan Howard. I'm scheduling every single team that recruited Hunter Dickinson because <laughs> that Maryland game, that was a bad man. And he was out yeah. there pissed at Maryland so whoever was on Hunter Dickinson's final 10 list of cut schools scheduled them next year and just you know mark Hunter down for 20 and 10. Yeah I love that technical foul I really love that that was great 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Give me all the guys that will score four straight buckets and flex on the other team's coach who didn't recruit them. Like, I, I want as many of those guys as possible. Exactly, man. Just dogs. How many times under Beeline did you work on post entries, Stu? Well, surprisingly, a lot. Really? <laughs> yeah. I was expecting zero to be that. Well, easy. if you remember, Deshaun Sims was, I mean, okay. one of the best post footwork players I've ever played with maybe the best i mean the guy was like a ballerina it was insane i remember the game we played at purdue and he gave juan johnson the defensive player of the year like 17 points in the first half all in the post all one-on-one and it was like juan didn't know what hit him he had never seen anything like it he was not used to getting scored on like this and you know i played i played with deshaun one year in israel and it you know he got even better then but uh yeah, I mean, Beeline covers his bases. That, that is for sure. We didn't throw in the post very often, but when we did, it was like, okay, we're going to spend 10 minutes doing drill now. Fake up, go low, fake up, go low with the left hand, do pivots into the post, like all of it, man. He's covering all the bases, and then we're going to watch film on our technique of throwing in the post. So, he, yeah, we definitely worked on it. I guess I shouldn't doubt it. I was, I was yeah. asking that to lead into how different is it watching a Jawan Howard-led Michigan program now than what you're used to? Yeah, very different. Uh, but even, you know, there was still that semblance of the five out one in system and you had the wing players getting the screens and, and all that stuff with, with Beeline. Um, but watching him, obviously they had way more talent in that um, 2013 year. So that, that definitely helps for him to take a step back and let other people kind of take control players. And, you know, he's even talked about to me even and, and talked about to other people about how he let coaches take more control of certain scouts or plays or worry about defense or worry about a bad shot taken so he can worry about the game as a whole. Um, Cause he's very detail oriented. So he, he talked about with me on the podcast about how he would just be focusing on somebody taking a bad shot too much. And now he's thinking about it and the other team is, uh, scored on the other end and he didn't even see what happened and, and so now he doesn't even know what happened and what adjustments need to be made or if somebody made a mistake and needs to come out or whatever so he did a really good job of deferring in that way um, but it is definitely different to watch a seven foot guy go on the post and just put in work uh, but again that is a testament to what Beeline did and to a great coach that Juwan is and you just play to your strengths and you figure out what you're going to be good at and I mean the dude didn't even start to begin the year like I don't, they knew he was good. I think everyone knew he was good, but like, you don't know what to expect. So you got to be open. You got to be humble to being wrong on in your initial valuations. You got to be open to just constantly reevaluating and leave whatever ego you have aside or however, you know, however much intelligence you think you have. Uh, you you got to let that go and learn something new every single day, because there's still, like you said, Carl, like there's still more to be unlocked with Franz. There's more to be unlocked with, livers i think waiting for him to really blow up in some of these games like he'll show up and win some games for them so you have to constantly be ready to change yeah i think they there was one game i think it was the they don't blow up against us though i gotta say (laughs) oh he's definitely something's gonna happen he's gonna be waiting he's gonna save it for that game blow up against northwestern I, I, carter i can't tell you how much i'm looking forward to the thomas kithier uh, Hunter Dickinson matchup in the post this year. It's going to be fun. Oh, man. Nothing like it. <laughs> He's not. Carter is not. Looking He's, not. He's not. 
It's the first time in like 20 years that there's a mismatch at center for the maize and blue car. You can have one year of that. Yeah. Okay. Give Michigan one year. That's fine. <laughs> one year too many in my book. Yeah. Oh. All right. So I've, I have two questions for you before we wrap and these should both be pretty quick hitters. Um, so the first one, I, I'd love for you to give us your John Beeline era Michigan starting five, including yourself. Okay. So give me the, the five guys you would most like to play with that can make the best team you can from the Beeline era. Okay. So Trey, point guard. I'm a shooting guard. Man, that's tough. Because I'm a little more biased towards Tim. But, like, I know Stauskas is really damn good. <laughs> I'll go I'll go with Tim. This is going to be, like, my team. Because then I want to play with <laughs> Novak. <laughs> but, okay, from the Beeline era, let's go. Oh, man, this is tough. The five... I would love to play with Mitch. Mitch would have been really fun to play with. I love my guy, J-Mo. Love him a lot. Uh, and shout out to J-Mo. Jordan Moore, he's killing it right now overseas. Would love to play with Mitch. But if it wasn't Trey, I would love I would love to have played with Derek Walton. I would really love to play with Derek. I really like this game. And Xavier. I mean, the point guards throughout the years in Michigan have been incredible. Like guys that I would really love to play with. Um, and I get a little picky about guys that I would want to play with. So that's as a as – a, Huge testament to them and what they've done and kind of what they brought to the program. So the, both of those guys would be my honorable mention, that's for sure. But like, you can't leave Trey off the board, so that's tough. So are we did I hear this right? Trey, Tim, well, Trey, Stu, Tim, Zach, Mitch. Yeah, that, that would probably be it. That would probably be it. Okay, I like that answer. Um, although, man, if we're putting the next five up against that five, it, it, oh, it's yeah. going to be you versus Nick. Exactly. We'll <laughs> exactly. We need a lot of traps on ball screen. <laughs> um, all right. And my last question, you just led right into this. So there was a back and forth on Twitter I saw last week with uh, a friend of this show, Ant Wright. And you guys were discussing people that you may love in real life, but you do not like playing with versus people you love playing with that you may not like in real life. Okay. One, was that Ant Wright shade? And two, if it was not, do you care to name any names on who you were alluding to there? No, you know, I, I, I liked Ant Wright. Uh, I liked playing with Ant. Ant was, uh, you know, maybe Ant picked on me a little bit off the court, but uh, <laughs> no, Ant was cool. I liked playing with Ant. I liked him off the court. Um, I mean, there's certain guys all the time, like, you know, they have these mindsets it's hard. I don't want to sound like I'm talking too much trash because these guys, they, they have to have these mindsets in order to get where they need to go. And you have to be, you have to have a little selfishness. Like you, you have to have it. Like you have to be a little bit to show your talent. So there was times where, you know, I would be frustrated that Tim was able to take a shot that I wasn't allowed to shoot. But then, you know, maybe some defensive things were, you know, little you know beyond let them slide for him a little more than they did for me but that was our roles so you get you there is you know I knew I knew my role but like you're, I'm human so like I'm gonna be a bitter about it a little bit but there's guys that can be super frustrating I play a lot a lot of guys overseas and like I said guys bounce around from year to year and they get really selfish so it's funny I talked to some guys uh and on the court it's just like they never shut up they never stop complaining 
And then off the court, I can just talk to them about basketball and they're really nice and really cool and really understanding. And I'm like, the hell is wrong with you? But that, like, that's how they made it to where they've made it because they've had them entire. So it's hard to say that it's all bad at times. Um, but it is interesting to see, like, I have these conversations with people all the time and they're like, man, you must've loved so-and-so or loved playing with so-and-so or like, you must've been great to play with. And I'm like, no, dude, he was frustrating as hell because he got to do whatever he wanted and, you know, also complained and like, yeah, he's talented, but whatever. And then there's like the flip side of that. And it's just, it's funny to be, it's, it's hard to explain, but it, it's, it's constantly coming up like all the time. And like the realities of just the pressure and the grind that it takes to play with other players and to rely on other people like that, like it gets very tiring. Like it is, it is as much mental as it is physical and yeah, it, it can definitely wear on you for sure. And that's why I talked about earlier, like you, you see guys waste away their talents, first of all. Um, but just the, the dynamics of a team, like you're always going to be annoyed with somebody like always, like you're always going to be able to go back to your girlfriend or wife, parents and be able to complain about something that is always a fact. And like to say, otherwise you're just lying to yourself or you're lying about somebody else, like top to bottom coaches to the bottom player, the walk-ons, like there's always somebody to complain about. So, you know, that reality I think is not there for some people, especially fans. Like some people will view somebody and like, Oh, they're just great. Aren't they? And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess most of the time, but not all the time. Like, <laughs> this is real life. Like you don't love everybody all the time. So it's, it's funny to kind of maneuver. And I, you see me trying to maneuver this answer like right now, like I'm not airing out too many people, but it, it does happen. Like, you know, sports is, I think, honestly, it's like, it magnifies that in life. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a constant in life, but sports definitely magnifies that. So it's, it has been a fun thing to experience and learn from. That's that, that was, I mean, we gotta, let's just make sure we clip that G because that, <laughs> that is it right there. Cause there are definitely some teammates that I've had in the past and I'm really glad we're not teammates anymore. And we can just be friends. Cause I literally want to kill them. Oh, my, my best friend to this day, I play with in high school. We, did not like playing with each other. First of all, we competed way too much in high school. And then afterwards, I mean, the instant we lost to Gordon Hayward in the regional, I mean, been my, the bestest of my best friends since. And yeah, that's just how it is sometimes. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And even outside of sports, I know we're going to wrap this interview and Cart's going to text me and be like, damn, you really ran that whole conversation. I'm pissed at you right now. But <laughs> We'll get over it because that's what boys do. Exactly. Uh, and Stu, you can't, uh, I don't think you you can even say that you got too annoyed with anybody you played with because your all beeline era team was four guys that you loved playing with. Exactly. So, exactly. I mean, I, I exactly, that's my point. I have enough fond memories and I enjoyed it enough for like, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to just throw away all the success we had and the good times we had just for, you know, some dumb stuff like that. I love it. Well, cool. Uh, Stu, real quick, plug your podcast and anything else you got going on, but thank you for being here. Yeah, it's the Go Blue with Stu podcast on the Field of 68 Network. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify. Uh, we really appreciate it if you go subscribe, rate, review, and also go and subscribe to the YouTube channel. I don't know if we've gotten to a thousand subscribers yet, but that's when you can uh, monetize it and your boy's trying to make some money. So please go do that. That'd be very nice. And uh, yeah, it was, we had a lot of fun with you know, past three guests have been really great and hoping to get some more great Michigan guests. So it'll be fun to go check it out. 
and it's a great listen for all fans of basketball. Talking to my my Spartans out there, you'll enjoy listening to it. I would love, yeah. I would love some Spartan listeners. I, would, hey, I honestly kind of want to get my my dream is to get Draymond Green on for the rivalry week. That would be a lot of fun. That'd be great. But regardless of your affiliation, you know, tuck it aside. It's a good listen for basketball. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask this question because I have to. Have you played against Ben Carter over in Israel? I have not, but I played with him in what is called the Jewish Olympics. And this was between my first and second year overseas. And we were in Israel and we played on the same American team. And we won and it was a lot of fun. Ben's great. I don't know if you've met Ben's dad. Ben's dad is hilarious. Uh, he's quite the character. But yeah, Ben's been playing well overseas this year. And uh, it's nice to see him go well because, you know, Michigan fans love to talk smack about him. That is for sure. But he's been doing well. So it's been nice to see. He's really, an Israeli legend over in, in these parts. How is his high post passing these days? Is it still great? It's still good. It's still good. It is good. I look, Ben Carter was a fine college basketball player. Tom Izzo brought all of that on him. Oh, we know oh easily. I mean, that... Yeah, there's a lot to blame on Tom, that's for sure. Uh, and I forgot, I have a friend, a Jewish friend of mine, who was begging me to ask you this question. Uh, Stu, please go on record for the final time for the people. Are you a shawarma guy or are you a falafel guy? Shawarma, all the way. Yeah, my guy, man. Falafel's too dry. Yeah, falafel's got to be just right. But, like, if you give me dry shawarma, I mean – it's still perfect for me. I'm putting all the veggies, all the hummus, all of it, the tahini, all of it. Like I can't go wrong with shawarma. Got a little perfect into a little podcast conversation, and that was it. There you have it, folks. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, for being here today, Stu. We really appreciate it. And go subscribe, get him to a thousand, let him make some money off his podcast. He deserves it. Appreciate it. Thanks, guys. <laughs>